Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we are talking about firefighting women mm-hmm. because even though they're around all year, it's peak fire season in January in these cold winter months. That's right. I meet people running their space heaters and their generators and whatnot. It gets dangerous and you want capable people to be coming to your aid. That's right. But if a fire breaks out, chances are that the people coming to your aid are probably going to be guys because only 3.4% of firefighters are women, which is far lower than workplace statistics would project for that type of sector. Right. And I mean, women actually make up a good chunk of like emergency services. I mean, I think they're about 20 percent, which is not great, but it's definitely higher than 3.4 percent. And so before we get into why there are so few women, let's look at some of the women who have been firefighters and some of those trailblazers. Well, the very first trailblazer we have to talk about is a woman named Molly Williams, who is recognized as the first known female firefighter in the United States. And she was a slave who belonged to a merchant named Benjamin Amar. And they lived in New York City. And Amar was associated with the Oceanus Engine Company number 11. And Molly Williams became known as volunteer number 11 because I guess she went with Amar when he would be working at this fire department. Right. And during a particularly nasty 1818 blizzard when a lot of men had the flu, Williams joined in to help and pulled the giant heavy pump through the snow wearing nothing but her calico dress and a checked apron. And there are all of these children's books now about Molly Williams. And it's lauded that, you know, she came out in this blizzard. She was wearing just the calico dress and her checked apron. And... When you read about it, it's it's usually this in a very chipper tone of this woman who was in the blizzard fighting fires. But when I was reading this, Caroline, the first thought in my head was, did Molly Williams really want to be putting out these fires during a blizzard and nothing but a calico dress? I have a feeling she probably did not. Right, because it seems sort of glossed over that, oh, wait, no, this woman was actually enslaved by this merchant who was probably making her do this because there was one quote from her basically saying, listen, I kind of have to do whatever this Amar guy tells me to do because, uh, yeah, slavery. Hello. Yeah. So <laughs> not to cast a dismal light on the first female firefighter in the United States, because uh, it's it's cool that she's a first. But at the same time, it's sort of tainted by this, the reasons surrounding yeah. why she was the kind first. Of more negative circumstances. Yeah. But moving on from Williams's service, there were plenty of other women who volunteered on their own uh, throughout the early 20th century. Yeah, and even way before that, the earliest women firefighters were actually volunteers in urban and small town settings, dating back to the 1800s at least. And as we move forward, women have worked as fire lookouts since the early 1900s, chiefs of volunteer fire departments since at least the 1930s, and beginning in the mid-1970s, seasonal firefighters in the wildland sector a.k.a. forest fires. Yeah, and over at PBS, we found a pretty comprehensive timeline of some of those 
earlier 19th century trailblazers in addition to Molly Williams. Uh, for instance, if we leave New York City where Molly Williams was and head over to Pittsburgh in the 1820s, you have Marina Betts, who was a volunteer firefighter who served for about 10 years. And she was said to have never missed an alarm during all of her service. And I especially liked this tactic of hers, which was pouring buckets of water on male bystanders at fire scenes. Yeah, guys who weren't helping out. She would douse them. Yeah. Yeah. That would probably get me on the move. Probably away from, away from the away, fire. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we have Adelheid von Buckhau. She volunteered during a fire outbreak in 1895 and eventually was voted into the membership of the Atlantic City Fire Department in 1904 after helping out with a bucket brigade. And she is still the only female member of that fire department. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons, too, that she was eventually voted into the fire department is that she married a guy Uh, who worked there, too. mm. But, yeah, still, 1904, come on, Atlantic City. What's happening? Uh, moving on, though, in 1878, across the pond, students at the all-female Girton College near Cambridge in the UK formed a bucket brigade that existed until 1932. And that might sound like, oh, some ladies got together and formed a bucket brigade. No big deal. But actually, there was this problem on the Girton College campus where they had no way to put out fires at buildings because I think their pump system was broken or something like that. So it was almost an engineering problem that these students got together and solved to figure out how to institute some sort of fire safety measure. So it was it was a pretty significant thing that these uh, that this bucket brigade was. Man, how many fires are these people putting out, I wonder? Just stop catching things on fire. Well, there were probably tons of fires <laughs> in, the, in the 19th century before you had central heating. That's right. You're probably right. Smokey the Bear was not around <laughs> at that time, Caroline. Um, well, in 1895, you have Carrie Rockefeller, chosen as a regular member of Engine Company Number 1 in West Haven, Connecticut, quote, for her valuable services in helping to pull the apparatus, which sounds like a euphemism. <laughs> but, no, she was she was rewarded for her very good work. Yeah, in, uh, in the 1910s, I kind of like what was going on in Los Angeles with the fire departments because, as we will talk about later in the podcast, it's in stark contrast to the situation with uh, women in firefighting today in L.A. Uh, but at the time, there was a lack of available men during daytime working hours. And so during the early 20th century, the male chief of the fire department in L.A. was encouraging women to volunteer. And so you have in 1912, for instance, Captain Marie Stack, who heads up an all-female brigade in the L.A. Fire Department. And there were other all-female brigades that uh, popped up in Los Angeles as well, one of which was called something like the Society Brigade. And it was literally like ladies who lunch, like wealthy (laughs) women who this was their little hobby of just getting together and putting fires out. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. It was like a, a posh thing to do. I wonder if they would take off their white gloves first. Oh, I, I imagine. You know what, though? They probably had paid help who actually did the dirty work. That's probably right. I don't know. We're I'm so gonna, cynical. We are very, yeah, it's kind of cynical. Mm. I don't know. It didn't stay around too long. Uh, but, but for a short while there in Los Angeles, women putting out fires was all the rage. Yeah, it was a common thing. 
Well, then let's look at the transition from um, just volunteer service, not to poo-poo that, but into actual careers and paid service. Um, in 1926, you have 50-year-old Emma Vernell, who became the first woman officially recognized as a firefighter in New Jersey. And then higher up the ranks in firefighting in 1931, Anne Crawford Allen Holst became the first female fire chief when she became chief of the Cedar Hill, Rhode Island Fire Department. And when we get into World War II, as with a lot of other male-dominated fields, you have a lot of women entering fire departments, both volunteer and like main fire departments in cities, to take over the work that men left behind. After the war, the first women known to have been paid for fire suppression services were the wildland firefighting crews working for the U.S. Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management. But when it comes to municipal fire services, like the people who you'd call if a fire broke out at your house, the progress has been, even still, much slower. Although you have a lot of movement starting to happen in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, there were some all-women fire companies that sprang up in King County, California and Woodbine, Texas in the 60s. And by the 70s, it was becoming slightly more common for women to join the ranks of regular volunteer fire departments and working side by side with male peers. This is when you start to see a lot of firsts and also a lot of women more forcibly pushing their way into fire departments because they weren't always welcomed with open arms. Oh, yeah, that's an understatement. Um, In 1974, you have Judy Brewer, who becomes the first paid career female firefighter in Arlington County, Virginia. And she was quoted by NPR as saying, when I applied at my local fire station to volunteer in Fairfax County, I was told essentially to go back to my kitchen. It was no place for a woman. And this situation is hardly unique to Brewer. I mean, this story gets told over and over again. And then the following year in 1977, we have then law student Brenda Berkman, who's living in New York City, who notices that the fire department of New York is accepting applicants. And at this point, FDNY is under pressure from the court to diversify. So what the fire department was doing was actively trying to recruit black men. But Berkman thought, hey, you know what? I think that they also need to diversify in terms of gender. So she wants to get a group of women to apply to be firefighters. And they do. I think it was like 500 women or something applied in this massive recruitment effort in the late 70s. But guess what? They all failed. Yeah, they most of them passed the actual examination, the test. Uh, the written test, but they all failed the physical examination. And so in 1978, Berkman brings a gender discrimination lawsuit against the New York Fire Department under the Civil Rights Act after all of those women had, women had failed, saying that the test had been retooled and based off of the current male firefighters' abilities. And this set off a huge media firestorm because, first of all, people just didn't think that women should be allowed to professionally fight fires. Right. There didn't seem to be a huge pushback against women who might want to volunteer, but actually having something, a place like the New York Fire Department, mm-hmm. which is one of, if not the largest municipal fire department in the nation, starting to accept women, just seemed wrong. I mean, when when all of those women f- 
failed that test in 1978, one of the uh, headlines from that in the Daily News in New York, which is a paper that's no longer in existence, was uh, 90 femmes flop fire test and one sizzles. I mean, there were all these puns about yeah. like, you know, how they were, they were just waiting essentially for women to fail. And yeah. so when Berkman decided to bring this lawsuit, people weren't happy. And the fire union was not happy either. Right. I mean, uh, Brenda Bergman gave an interview with Makers on PBS, which is so interesting and so heartbreaking. And some of the images that they show during the interview are, you know, people holding up signs saying, I want to be saved by a fireman and a bumper sticker that says, don't send in a girl to do a man's job over and over. I mean, the the abuse that Berkman describes that she and her fellow female firefighters underwent in the New York Fire Department is insane. I just, I can't imagine going through anything like that. Well, and it wasn't only men who were leading the charge against this civil rights lawsuit either. I mean, there were plenty of women who were saying, no, we want, don't, don't send a girl to do a man's work, that kind of thing. And, uh, one of the quotes from that interview with makers that Berkman gave was, when I first came on the job 23 years ago, fighting fires was the easiest part of the job for me. Much harder was dealing with the hatred and discrimination that some male firefighters had for me, and now many of the initial problems FDNY women firefighters encountered have improved. Um, but it took a long time for that lawsuit to actually make its way through the court. Right. Yeah. And she was saying that um, men around her at that time were voicing opinions like, OK, feminism has gone too far. Second wave feminism, you know, this is a joke now, like. You want to be in every single facet of society like that's ridiculous. You're a woman. There are just some things you should leave it to men. And Bergman was saying, no, I this is what I have dreamed of doing since I was a little girl. Her family were all firefighters. She wanted to pursue that line of work also. Yeah, because it, it was interesting hearing her motivation for wanting to fight fires because it wasn't so much about breaking any kind of glass ceiling, although clearly, you know, that was that was part of the motivation for bringing that lawsuit. But for her personally, she thought that it was the best way to help people in the community, because when you have a problem at home. What do you do? You end up calling the fire department mm-hmm. a lot of times. Those are the people who are going to respond to your distress calls. Right. So then in 1982, Judge Charles Proctor Swifton rules in favor of those women, but not after the massive press controversy and demonstrations. People continue to demonstrate outside of his court. He received death threats and horrible, hateful letters. I mean, the the heat was on him as well for making yeah. this decision. And later that year, in November of 1982, 11 women, including Berkman, graduated from the firefighting academy. And Berkman went on to serve 26 years and achieved the rank of captain after enduring a ton of harassment. And she talks about how after she was promoted to lieutenant, she was like, you know, a lot of guys think it's hard to suddenly go from being a buddy and being in that like fraternity to suddenly being the boss and having to tell people what to do and to cut it out and all that stuff. And she's like, but, you know, that really wasn't a problem for me because they had never accepted me into their group anyway. Yeah. What were some of the things that she mentioned as examples of the harassment she had to endure? I I remember one thing she said was uh, going in and having seeing a massive bra stretched over Mm -hmm. her locker. But I mean, all the things she listed, they ranged from like stupid stuff like having a bra with her name on it to the guys would empty the oxygen out of her oxygen tanks. They would mess with her equipment. They peed in her boots. They turned her locker upside down. 
She wasn't allowed to eat with them. I mean, it's like the worst kind of in-your-face discrimination I've ever heard. Which only goes to show the determination of hers and these other groundbreaking women. Mm -hmm. There's 11 other women who passed the test to actually go out and fight fires. And I think she was one of the uh, the first responders, too, during 9-11 as well. Um, But the thing is, the situation in the late 70s and early 80s in the New York Fire Department is not isolated at all. I mean, even today, if we look at the national numbers, the firefighting gender gap is still massive in large part because of those issues of gender harassment, sexual harassment and discrimination that are still going on. Um, as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, for instance, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, women comprise only 3.4 percent of all firefighters in the U.S. And out of that, just 0.5 percent of first line supervisors of firefighting and prevention workers. Yeah. And if you want to look on the broad scale across the country, 51 percent of paid fire departments have never hired a female firefighter ever. Wow. 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 So that's a majority. 51 percent. That is a majority. So people are still wondering today, why are those numbers so persistently low? I mean, first of all, it's not supposed to be easy to become a firefighter. It's right. incredibly demanding because you have to do things like pull heavy lengths of hose. You have to climb stairs while wielding huge power tools like chainsaws. You have to be able to lift a ton of weight, such as an 180-pound, 35-foot wooden ladder. Personally, Caroline, I have zero upper body strength. Yeah, me too. I, w- I wouldn't cut it. I would not be able to pass the physical exam. It's not supposed to be easy. But... It's also not supposed to be discriminatory either. Right. And when you look at the Los Angeles Fire Department, for instance, they have come under a lot of heat, no pun intended, for their hiring practices. And they have barely been able to pass any women with a lot of those women alleging discrimination. Yeah, uh, there was a huge article about this in the L.A. Times kind of charting this whole hot mess, essentially, of their municipal fire department. And in one comprehensive article from the L.A. Times, uh, the journalist details how there are less than 3% of firefighters, fire paramedics, fire administrators, and fire investigators that are women. But according to an audit by the city's personnel department in 2006, that tiny group accounted for 56% of the lawsuits against the Los Angeles Fire Department between 1995 and 2005. Right. And these women are claiming that there's an unequal playing field. You know, they say they just want to be accepted as firefighters. They don't want to be treated differently and they don't want to be considered crybabies either. But a lot of people are pointing out like, hey, your hiring practices are putting a dent in the taxpayer's wallet. Yeah, because the taxpayers are ultimately the ones who are paying for all of these costly sexual discrimination suits that are being brought. Because a lot of times it's the plaintiffs who are winning. And so the fire department Mm -hmm. is having to settle with them. But ultimately, they're not the ones who are paying for it. And right. when they, the journalist was interviewing people within the, the government and within the fire departments trying to figure out whether or not the tests had been devised to, you know, allow women in there, if they were even passable for women, 
the answers were so ambiguous. Some would say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, we've actually had to let some women in who wouldn't normally be allowed in just for numbers reasons. Others, others saying that no, actually, it's devised so that women can't get in. Mm-hmm. It was hard to get to figure out what exactly was going on. Yeah. And, you know, one issue in particular when you're talking about um, just gender discrimination and not being properly equipped to handle women becoming firefighters is the gear. You know, if you don't have suits that fit right, masks that fit right, you can really be injured. And so women firefighters in Orange County out in California recently did win a lawsuit to provide them with the basics, just the protective gear and the uniforms that fit. Yeah, I mean, in, in addition to things like uniforms, even the facilities often aren't set up for women to even work there. So mm-hmm. you've also had lawsuits that have been brought down simply to institute bathrooms for women being built. Because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're working full time with a fire department, there are living quarters there and there are bathrooms there and you're showering there. And if you're a woman, you don't want to, you know, it, it can't be co-ed. Yeah. And be copacetic all the time. Um, and there was a recent blog post actually by a guy named John K. Murphy, who's a retired fire chief. And he was writing over at the fire engineering site. And he essentially just gave a laundry list of all of these discrimination suits that women had brought, alleging things like sexual harassment, uh, the, the test being set up against them, like all, all of these barriers that women were facing once they were inside of fire departments. And he was just saying that it's time for it to stop. I mean, he was horrified as someone who was a fire chief who had worked in this field for years and years, mm-hmm. just saying, guys, listen, what what is going on? You right. Stop it. Right. And people from outside the industry are taking a look at this, too. There's been a lot of academic research into the issues of, of gender and race in uh, in fire departments. One uh, study published in the International Journal on Diversity documented the good and the bad that comes with firefighting. And the good is that, you know, for a job that does not require you to go to college or get a master's degree or anything, the potential benefits are great. And the hourly wage of $19.42 isn't too shabby. Unfortunately, as the study found, when women are hired, the majority of them, 85 percent, say that they were treated differently. 80% said they were issued ill-fitting equipment. 30% reported that their gender created barriers to career advancement. Half felt shunned or socially isolated. And 37% are verbally harassed. And just for comparison, in that same study, they found that 12% of men reported experiencing discrimination. So clearly there's something going on there. And, And one other thing that these Cornell researchers did in that study was compare the number of women in firefighting with other high-risk types of jobs like logging, uh, being a bus mechanic, being a roofer, being a septic tank servicer. And they found that women in those other similar sectors comprise around 17% of the employees. And to and that's in such stark contrast to the 3.4% yeah. of female firefighters. Now, there are a lot more volunteer firefighters. It's, it's estimated that there are between 35 to 40,000 women in the volunteer fire service in the U.S. But if you want this to be your career, mm-hmm. even today, it's quite a challenge. And it's even a challenge, too, for women who are in there, because I don't think that a lot of women want it to be 
I don't think a lot of women want their gender to be an even bigger issue than mm-hmm. it already is by virtue of them just standing there and looking like a woman, you know? Right. And so there were some uh, women in the L.A. Fire Department talking about how, you know, they, d- they don't want to say anything because it's already assumed that they're going to be a crybaby, but this is what they really want. Right. Right. So, well, you know, like Berkman mm-hmm. said that, you know, she was like, I, there were a million times I could have quit, you know, the abuse got so bad. But she was like, I knew that if they got rid of me, it would be open season on the rest of the women in the department. They would pick them off one by one and have no mercy. Yeah, it's tough. I can't I mean, I can only imagine tough on top of what can't be an easy job to begin yeah. with in the day to day. Right. And so all of this is in line with a study that's that's slightly dated, but I think it, it illustrates well what we're talking about. There was a 1994 study in women's health that found that male and female firefighters have similar job stressors, but female firefighters reported significantly higher scores than men did on job skill concerns. And job discrimination reported by female respondents was significantly higher than for males, even though it was not ranked among the five most stressful factors. And there were a number of studies that we also found suggesting that women of color are at an even greater risk of gender harassment within fire departments. So it only exacerbates these issues that are already at work. It's mm-hmm. not easy to be a woman in a fire department. It's especially not easy to be a black or Latina woman in a fire department because they were almost targeted more for um, hazing that would go on and just being isolated, socially isolated. I mean, I can't imagine like with like you mentioned with Berkman, she wasn't allowed to eat. With her coworkers. Mm-hmm. Now I eat at my desk because I don't have time to not eat at my desk <laughs> right. every day at work. But to to be so forcibly ostracized, it's got to be really tough, right? So I mean, props to any women firefighters who are listening to this. And we we are specifically talking about firefighters and not talking so much about EMS workers because the the gender issues in this are so stark. I was not expecting this mm-hmm. at all. I thought it would be, you know, kind of a plucky tale of women putting out fires and aren't we strong? And whoa, no, it's like it's horrific. Yeah, it's not that at all. And so, I mean, I'm glad, you know, we we, we like to try to end things on a more hopeful note. And I don't know that we can other than to say that it's good that we're talking about it. And like Berkman said in her Makers interview, you know, you never see Women in fire trucks, you oh, know, yeah. Yeah. Right, riding along on the truck to the fire, to the emergency and how important that is, as it is to see women, you know, in the computing fields, in the science fields. It's the same thing, you know, how important it is to see a woman on a fire truck so that just a girl, you know, playing outside will think, maybe I can do that when I'm a grown up. Yeah, I was uh, I was reading an interview actually with a female firefighter who was a 9-11 responder. And she was saying that exact thing of how when she was on the fire truck headed to the Twin Towers, she remembered looking and seeing people with these astonished looks on their faces just at the sight of seeing a woman, you know, responding to this fire. Because even she was like, it, it still happens after 15, 20 years of service, which sure. is kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but not even as incredible as what these women are, are doing all for the passion of this specific line of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly 
we shouldn't take our female firefighters for granted. Absolutely. Or our male firefighters. It's an important job and one that I'm not physically strong enough to do. <laughs> no, definitely can't pull that hose. No. No. Uh, so I hope that maybe there are some firefighters listening, male, female, whomever. We want to hear from you. Um, it, was this as surprising to you as it was for us? Uh, let us know all of your fiery thoughts. Mom stuff at discovery.com is where you can send your letters. And we have a couple of letters to share with you when we get right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. So I've got a couple letters here about the holidays. The first one is from Anouk. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, so she writes, Your podcast, Are Holidays Bad for Relationships, made me think back to Christmas 2007. I was dating a German since the end of October of that year, and I'm Dutch and lived in Amsterdam at the time, so we only saw each other every other weekend. Around Christmas, there were a few parties in his town that we were both invited to, and he said I could stay with him for the two weeks around Christmas and New Year's. So the day finally arrived, and he had an official dinner from work and invited me to come along, and I was also invited to his family for Christmas dinner. To me, this meant that things were getting more serious, and I was very flabbergasted when a friend made a joke about relationships, and my quote-unquote boyfriend bluntly said, We are not in a relationship. There were a lot of people in the room that all seemed surprised. It really hurt my feelings, and I told him that when we were alone. He said that he had never said we were in a relationship, and I made it clear that I found it disrespectful and didn't want to be treated that way. It took him about five more months before he wanted to make the relationship official. I saw something special in him and thus gave it a chance while pursuing my own dreams. Fortunately, the story has a happy ending. We moved in together in 2009, bought a house this year, and are expecting our second child. We were very happy together, but the beginning was difficult, and it took me a long time to not feel sad about that. Perhaps if we hadn't had that holiday period in the beginning, the relationship would have developed more naturally. Well, I'm glad there was a happy ending, though. Okay, I have a letter here from Lori about dealing with family stress during the holidays, and I all I can say, Lori, is, oh, girl, I feel ya. Uh, the letter states, Since I have a small family and we live in different states, I have always done the holidays with my husband's family, which is rather large. There are four siblings with their husbands and wives and their children and grandchildren. When my mother-in-law was no longer able to host the holiday dinners, I took over. A holiday meal at my house would normally consist of 25 to 35 people with numerous children. Two of the families consistently showed up a half hour to an hour late and then would complain if we started eating without them or if the food was cold. Also, their children and grandchildren were out of control. They would climb behind furniture, knock over lamps, mark my walls, and if I said anything, I was told that they were just kids. They also would leave their plates on the table and just walk away and would not think of helping to wash a dish. I have to pause here and say, Lori, again, I feel you. And some people don't understand that even though they are just kids, they should be able to help out and not be jerks. And rant. Okay. Continuing on, she says, Since it seemed to be only these two families that caused all the commotion, I finally told my husband that I refused to do the holiday meals any longer if I had to deal with this. The following year, my husband only invited his sister and her family as well as my mother-in-law. The holiday meals are much calmer now. We also switched from eating on china to eating on paper plates to save dishwashing and cleaning time. Instead of just family for holiday meals, we now sometimes have friends also join us. While my holidays are still busy, I do enjoy them much more and with much less stress, less mess, and less broken items in my house. So, Lori, I'm glad that you are such a wonderful example of communication 
slash telling your husband that you're just not dealing with it anymore. Sometimes you got to do it. Yeah. Sometimes you've got to draw a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. So good for you, Lori. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send your letters. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or message us over on Facebook. And to find all things Stuff Mom Never Told You, our blogs, our videos, our podcasts, all of our social media links, there are a ton of them. We're on pretty much everything. There's one and only place to go now www.stuffmomnevertoldyou.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com 